the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, director of content at Steinway & Sons and editor-in-chief of the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. Today I'm speaking with pianist Tiffany Poon, who grew an audience on YouTube with a channel that combines performance videos with a video blog chronicling the behind-the-scenes of playing piano. Tiffany, you have successfully used YouTube as a platform both for your piano playing and for your life as a classical pianist. And I would love to hear about how this came to be. How did this happen? How did you make this decision to say, okay, this is how I'm going to do it. This is how I'm going to get my music and my life as a musician out to people. Well, I think it's very nice of you to say that I have successfully done this because I'm not sure it is exactly <laughs> successful. I do think luck was a huge part in this. I have been actually very, very concerned about being just known for the whole YouTube endeavor. Sure. I was trying to make a career and I would practice, of course, but I always had this other side of me where I was very curious about other things outside of the actual music making. So it kind of started when I was studying philosophy at Columbia. So I decided to go the non-traditional route of pursuing a degree in music because I had already spent eight years in pre-college at Juilliard. So I wanted to take advantage of a four-year full ride and study something else. And I've always been very fascinated by people's outlook on life. And I thought that this was something that I just enjoyed from reading literature. But then I realized uh, after the first semester, I took this course. It was actually my very first class in college called Philosophy of Art. That changed my mindset so much because I've never thought of such seemingly mundane questions. Like You don't usually sit at your uh, desk or at your couch thinking about what is something. And I never thought, what is art? And what is beauty? And questions like this. And uh, it kind of sparked this interest in philosophy. I decided to change my major from English to philosophy because I realized I had no interest in analyzing sentences, but I had a huge interest in people's various perspectives on the same things. And that's something that I really just enjoy thinking about in multiple perspectives. And it's very helpful also in music to think in other people's perspectives because that's essentially what you're doing uh, when you're a musician. You're trying to convey someone else's perspective I think it was actually the second semester of junior year in college when I started to think about philosophy studies in relation to music or just experience of things in general. And it was around that time when I thought about classical music and how there is such a different experience between the interaction of the audience and the music that is very, very different from how one experiences pop music, for example. And I kind of had this hypothesis that I think it's because of the human that is missing from classical music. There's already this stereotype that, oh, it's you know very closed off, very elites, and only certain groups of people or certain institutions have classical music, and it's not really part of the everyday life. But obviously, it is part of many people's everyday lives. But that human hasn't really been part of that experience because... You know, usually you go to a concert and you watch someone walk on stage 
probably a human walking on stage and then they walk back and uh, they kind of disappeared into the secret life of a <laughs> classical music artist. So I kind of wanted to experiment and see, okay, what if you put back the human? Would that draw in more audiences? Would that kind of stop this general stereotype about classical music being just for old people? It's kind of dead and very dehumanized. So that's kind of how it started. So there was a need you felt to humanize classical music because of its stodgy institutional perception among the public. Yeah, I mean, growing up, I was never surrounded by people who liked classical music in my generations. And I always felt in my own bubble and didn't really know how to connect with others because they don't think of classical music as something very current. I was just thinking everything has some sort of mediation nowadays, especially with technology. So what if you use that to highlight the human a little bit more? Not to say that it should override the grandiose or the entire aura of classical music as in the music itself and the respect for composers, but there is something I think to be said to have the musician draw in an audience as well. So it was always your intention then on YouTube to combine performance videos with these vlogs. Yeah. The vlogs are great for me because they take us behind the scenes, right? (laughs) Behind the scenes content is great because it's something only you can offer us in a way, right? Only Tiffany Poon can take us behind the scenes with Tiffany Poon, right? I would hope so. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Hopefully. hopefully. No imposters. (laughs) What's great about that is it does demystify classical music. For example, I just watched a video you posted about rehearsing in Salzburg playing Brahms Piano Concerto Number 1. Yeah. And we see you get up, and we see you get ready, and we see you being nervous, and we see you having lunch, and then going to the rehearsal. And what's that interaction like between the orchestra and the Mm -hmm. conductor? You get inside that orchestra-conductor-soloist triangle that exists in any concerto, and, and we see how that plays out. So I think that's great. And it helps resolve uh, this problem that you just spoke of, which is how do we humanize classical music? How do we make it more accessible? People use that term a lot uh, in meetings. Yeah, it's a problematic term because in some sense it could sound very degrading. But then if you reject that term, then people are like, oh, you elitist. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So it's definitely a tightrope. But I think by saying this is me, I'm a pianist, and this is what we do, and this is how we do it. You really are breaking down this perceived. I think it's perceived. I don't think it's actual, but I think there's a perceived barrier to entry with classical music. Some folks are intimidated by it, and I think your vlog, wherein you address very basic questions like, what do you practice? How do you practice? What do you do when you're frustrated? By addressing those things and taking us behind the scenes with Tiffany Poon, then this makes us see you as human. And in turn, it must make us hear that music with more human ears. Yeah, and I think it's just empathy. It's such an important part in so many things. I mean, especially with music, to understand how someone is experiencing their life at the moment when they performed or composed a piece of music. And I think it's just about that human-to-human connection that is uh, so important. So uh, I hope that I'm making some difference here in this experience of classical music. Let's talk a little bit more about this relationship. In my business, it's sort of online versus offline media. As a writer, I know if I go to a publisher and I say I have an idea for a book, it will really help me if I say, 
I have a YouTube channel or I have a podcast or I have a Facebook following with X number of a built-in audience for what I'm about to do for you. So has the YouTube channel helped you IRL in real life, as the kids say, as far as bookings and tourings? Is that something that you can lead with and say, hey, I have a built-in audience of fans for what I'm about to do with you? In 2019, that was when I started getting attention. It was never my intention to get the attention, but it was the subsequent consequence of this. And I started getting random invitations to places. So the very first time I experienced this was actually in the summer of 2018. At the time, I don't think I had that many followers, but I think what I was doing was quite new. And so I got invited to Singapore and that was such a big deal to me because I didn't think that what I was doing was actually necessarily going to translate into career advancement, just that it was more for a philosophical project and just something to present myself, not necessarily that it would do anything for my concert bookings. But yeah, it has happened where it's a combination of, luckily I also got signed to Young Artist Foundation just the same summer and kind of everything aligned together. So I got the help from my manager as well and also from my wonderful subscribers and interactions on the internet. So it kind of happened simultaneously. As a guy who does this podcast in addition to other things, I know it takes a lot just to do a podcast and it's even more to do a vlog. There's a lot of editing, there's captioning, there's fusing. And then there's also an added element of you trying to do what you do during the day with an added component now of having to document it and record it, right? Which is a an added level of, of pressure yeah. in the moment. When you're recording something, like if it's a rehearsal or a practice, is it the same sense of being on stage as when you're performing a concert? Do you feel pressure to, to be on in that sense when you're creating a video? Not really. I mean, it wouldn't be real if I was on, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. a... Kind of, I mean, I have many personalities in some sense, but I am just the way I am. It's like talking to a friend when the camera is on. It's not really something that I'm like, I have to be this way. That's true for you, isn't it? You have a very dear diary component to these videos. Yeah, it just wouldn't make sense if I was suddenly an actress on these vlogs, then I am someone else separate from being a pianist. So I'm not any different, really. It's not so much of a pressure. You mentioned pressure. The pressure is more of what the outcome of the video will be like. Like, will people watch it? Will people mm -hmm. like it, be interested in it? Not like in the sense of, you know, pressing the button like, but genuinely the human emotion of liking it. And uh, if they're invested in classical music as a result, because I've had some criticisms or skepticisms from people who said oh your audience is not actually an audience for classical music you know they don't mean anything but I've always been very surprised and grateful how they always come to my concerts and they get the tickets to my live stream concerts during the pandemic so they've always been supportive. Is there a time balance between I'm practicing and I'm creating a video do you try to give a certain percentage to each? No. It's just all one big monster. It's just all in my head. <laughs> it's just all in my head. So sometimes it drives me a little bit crazy. I think by the end of last year, I felt really tired and I was very paranoid about, okay, if I'm doing something, 
man, should I have turned on the camera to film this? This is the behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. This is how I mean with the split personalities. There's the camera person thinking, oh, this would be something that aligns with what you're trying to do and showing the behind the scenes. And then there's the actual person in the behind the scenes. And then there's, of course, the couch potato. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> it's like trying to think what is going to be interesting and what should be documented. Sometimes that drives me a little bit nuts, but I have found a little bit better in the balance or I just don't think so much of the pressure. The videos themselves, does that become a revenue stream for you as an artist or is it just a vehicle to get to the concertizing? The vehicle sounds very calculating. Like I'm a menacing witch behind the camera, manipulating people. <laughs> is it something that just helps you get gigs or is it on its own a source of revenue for you as an artist? I don't think of it as a business, which is sometimes not so smart from an objective point of view, but I just think of it as a human connection. People ask me, do you dedicate a certain amount of time to respond to people? And do you have like a fixed schedule? And I just always say, you know, do you fix a certain time when you will respond or not respond to your friends? Maybe a little bit rude. So I just think of it as something that I feel is part of my journey and what I should be doing. It's not so much like it's a vehicle for something. But of course, during the pandemic, it wasn't my intention. That wasn't what I had thought of when I was in college. But my audience has been supporting my living expenses and giving me the safety net uh, as I build up the concerts. Because obviously, there was no way I could realistically be living off just a concert a month or maybe every other month when I was just building up my career. But then the pandemic hit. And so that's when basically all my revenue came from my audience on the internet. So through YouTube and through Patreon. Let's talk music. Yes, please. I would be so sad if we spent the entire time talking about the online stuff. Who are your composers? Like just looking at your rep, it would seem to me Bach, Chopin, Liszt, those are your guys. Are those your guys? Who who am I missing? Schumann. Schumann's your guy? My guy. Well, with all due respect to Clara. (laughs) (laughs) So both of the Schumanns. I think it started off with Robert Schumann. I mean, I love playing around with different personalities. It's just so much fun to be able to play the same piece and have the little character pieces. What do you mean by that, playing around with different personalities? Well, you know Robert Schumann's shtick, right? With the Eusebius and Florestan dual personalities in his music. I know his shtick, but let's tell our listeners what you're talking about. (laughs) I don't know why I said the word shtick. It's a very relaxing talk, so now random words like those come up. Yeah. But basically... It's his thing. It's Schumann's thing. It's his signature. I mean, I don't think... Correct me if I'm wrong, you probably have a lot more experience and knowledge in this, but I don't think there is a composer who is mainly known for this dual personalities in their music that is so explicit to the point where he signs their initials at the end of certain movements. Like, for example, David's Bundertanze. He writes... Uh, Eusebius under certain movements and then certain movements writes uh, F for Floristan. And it's this kind of playing with two contrasting personalities. And I 
think it kind of is like me where I have this seemingly outgoing and talkative elements on the internet at times, but offline, the potato couch in me, it's also, you know, very much of an introvert and I get exhausted from socializing for a certain period of time. So it's kind of playing around with this and just really exploring imagination and living in fantasies while, of course, also respecting the music itself. So it's not like I'm going off on my own, but I think Schumann allows the most amount of colorful imagination possible because of these character pieces. You know, it's so lively and I can express the same piece with different nuances every time. If Schumann were on the couch today, we may well diagnose him as a schizophrenic or as someone with a multiple personality disorder. But back in the day, he was a romantic. I think German romanticism, you know, it kind of encourages that thinking. You know, I think of Tieck's writings. Uh, in modern times, his literature would have been considered just someone getting high or something, you know, but it's not something so crass. It's a little bit more aesthetic and more philosophical. It allows you to explore different aspects of human experience. So what Schumann piece have you been working on most recently? I mentioned Davids Bundertanz already. That was something that I started to learn late last year. And then, of course, there is Kinderzenden, which always plays a huge part in my emotional life, kind of. Just, uh, I mean, I played that piece and that was what bonded my earlier subscribers back in 2019. Just always stood a very, very special place in my heart with all the memories tied to my audience and, of course, with my nostalgic look back at my childhood. And so those are the two main ones. And then there's an arabesque in the middle of that program. Both definite war horses that can withstand myriad interpretations and that I'm sure you'll gain some sparkling insight into. 
Yeah, well, I hope so. I mean, I think it's just been very fascinating. You, we mentioned Clara Schumann just because I was reading a collection that she edited of Robert Schumann's letters, and I found that intimacy and the just the yeah inspiration very fascinating. How they connected with each other. I started also learning a few of her pieces because I wanted to get inside the world of Robert Schumann. So that included playing some of her pieces and reading some of his favorite authors' books and getting into his world. Because you know he also actually. You're a journalist, so you know he also founded a journal back in the day. I didn't know that. Tell me. This is where it really meant so much to me to have this program of David Spundor Townsley because he had this imaginary, so not only his own two characters, actually there is a third one that he had, which was named Raro. It's kind of the wise guy between the two extremes because Eusebius is more of the dreamy, emotional person. And then there's Florestan, who's a lot more forward and kind of passionate person. And so kind of like introvert versus extrovert in some sense. David, I think that's how you pronounce the name, was a group, uh, he called it the League of Davids. And their whole point was trying to fight against Philistinism and art. And I think he had a lot of thoughts about the current trends of his day with music. Some were not so great compositions. Some were great that he reviewed. And uh, he and his group of friends, some of them were imaginary, like his three characters. But he had these other friends who also wrote under pseudonyms. And they were part of this technically imaginary League of Davids, but they were actually real people behind the names. And so I've been very slowly reading through this collection of his journal reviews made by his imaginary characters, sometimes as himself and also uh, by his friends. That's pretty wild. I see that just yesterday you uploaded Clara Schumann Mazurka, Opus 6, number three. Yes. What insight did you get from Clara Schumann, both into her own music and into Robert? So what I have gathered about Clara is that, of course, you can read this as the description on Wikipedia somewhere that she was a mother of seven children. And you can think of all the things about that. She was also juggling her concertizing career, but just how loving of a mother she was and also how much she did as an artist. Because I think nowadays you think of someone like a musician, they play music, they play concerts, and maybe they do some other things kind of related. But it's not so wide of a spectrum of things that they did. And I really had a newfound respect for her from reading her daughter's memoir. And uh, the relationship between Robert and Clara, it's uh, so romantic to the point where it could seem cheesy if it were written now. But I think there's something very beautiful in that state of mind and in that time when it comes to romanticism that can't really repeat itself in today's world. You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard Tiffany Poon perform Kinderzena No. 1 by Robert Schumann, live from the Steinway Vault at Steinway Hall in New York City. Our intro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, Editor-in-Chief at ListenMusicCulture.com. 
Our outro music is Tiffany Poon performing Clara Schumann's Mazurka Opus 6, Number 3 from her YouTube channel. Tiffany Poon has launched Together with Classical, a nonprofit charity platform dedicated to the classical audience and its shared passion for classical music. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. Subscribe to Soundboard on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, or wherever you pod your casts. Thank you for listening.